My gosh, you boys already know I'm not letting that Ramsey boy come over and play until you clean up your rooms. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and what should you do in the five years before you retire? Even if you're not quite there, we'll cover what it takes to build up to and then prepare for your big day with the author of the hit book, now in its second printing, The Five Years Before You Retire by Emily Guy Birkin. Plus, how are people doing building wealth? We'll cover the Charles Schwab Modern Wealth Survey with the Vice President of Financial Planning of Schwab, Rob Williams. And later, Mac is looking to turn his brewing hobby into a business. What does he need to know? Uh, Well, I'll tell you this, Mac. If you need a taste tester of your fine beverages, it's this guy right here. And then, of course, I'll share some of my stellar trivia. Oh, hey, and people... It's also leave the office early day, so let's not dilly-dally. Now, two guys who you call the dilly and the dally of this podcast, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. He is not messing around. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me. The guy who also thinks it's kind of ironic that on a four-day work week, we're celebrating National Leave the Office Early Day, Mr. Hochi. I think you should listen to the podcast on one and a half X today instead of one and a quarter. <laughs> it is time, chop, chop. time to go. I am super happy because we have uh, a woman that I have spent a lot of time with the past six months, actually more like the past year and a half, Emily Guy Birkin. For people who don't know, I have a book coming out at the end of this year, and Emily is my co-author. But right now, she has a book that has done so well. It is uh, now seven years later, updated again, the five years before you retire. We're going to talk to her, because that's an evergreen topic, OG. Seems like I'm always five years before retirement. I never get any closer. (laughs) I was thinking that the second I said it. It's not evergreen for every person, but there always is somebody who's going to be five years before they retire. Sure. Rob Williams from Charles Schwab also here. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, star-studded lineup. Rob Williams from Charles Schwab. Emily Guy Birkin, five years before you retire. So let's get into our headlines. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. We don't often talk about other podcasters on the show, but there's this podcaster a few people might know named Dave, named Dave Ramsey. Is that how you pronounce it? Ray, Ray. I don't think he's a podcaster, do you? Oh, I consider him as pod, a podcaster. Heck yeah. Screw that. Doesn't he doesn't get to be part of our club? Radio is just old school podcasting. That's all it is. He wants to be like us. That's why they turned it into a podcast. Yeah, but I think this is important. Uh, headline yesterday in Investment News, written by Bruce Kelly. Dave Ramsey bids Bon Voyage to Timeshare Exit Advertiser and all its baggage. Have you first of all have you heard these Timeshare Exit advertisements all over the radio? As I do not listen to the radio, no. But I do know what you're talking about because on occasion, when I feel like I'm a little too full of myself, I listen to a little Dave Ramsey and he reminds me what kind of a tool I am and puts me in my place. So sometimes you got to get knocked down a peg. That's what I use it for. There's a little motivation in there too, but I do know I do know what you're talking about. I know one of those advertisers is, uh, you know, because timeshares generally are like boats, right? Like the two happiest days is boat or the day you buy it and the day you sell it. The same thing with the timeshare. It's like sometimes, most of the time, I guess. Sometimes, yeah. most of the time. Well, that's what I want to talk about is this whole issue of the timeshare uh, people that get you out. These are groups of attorneys that have figured out ways to get you out. They advertise a high success rate. However, I have seen other reports that show that the the amount of time that they can get you out is a lot less than they say on their advertisements. Well, is it something like getting you out or is it just like reselling it? No, they get you out and they get you out sometimes based on the sales practices that were used to get you in. I see. Uh, this is a different thing then. Yeah. They'll find loopholes in the paperwork. Bruce Kelly wrote, beloved by financial advisors who do business with his organization by paying for potential client leads. Some people may not know that either, that people can sign up and get paid by Dave Ramsey to get uh, leads from him for people that call in. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You do not get paid by Dave Ramsey to get leads from Dave Ramsey. 
you pay Dave Ramsey. You pay Dave in Ramsey. order to get leads, <laughs> leads from Dave Ramsey. I want my cake and eat it too. I like the other way better. Exactly. Me too. If Dave Ramsey could pay me to take these people, all right, Dave. Fine. I'll I'll talk to some of your clients. Dave Ramsey stepped into some controversy last year when an advertiser who promised consumers freedom from burdensome timeshare real estate contracts was sued by the state of Washington. Until recently, the companies that advertise on Dave Ramsey's show included Timeshare Exit Team, which was the center of a 2020 lawsuit by Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson. According to the complaint, which was filed in February, Timeshare Exit Team, also known as Reed Hine and Associates, used numerous unfair or deceptive business practices relating to services to, quote, exit consumers' timeshares. In an episode of The Ramsey Show, last Thursday, a video which was posted on YouTube, Ramsey blamed the high cost of various lawsuits from Washington State and the timeshare industry is the reason why Timeshare Exit Team is no longer an advertiser. The company has gotten more than 20,000 consumers out of unwanted timeshare contracts, and while hugely successful, is facing millions of dollars of legal fees and may be running out of cash, according to Ramsey. Their deceptive sale practices were better deceptive sales practices than the timeshares. Is that how they got them out? Like, ours are more deceptive. <laughs> Therefore, you're out. <laughs> it's deceptive getting into a timeshare, and it's deceptive getting out of a timeshare. You're deceived all the way around. It's full-on deception. They're full Decepticons. While the piece doesn't explain what the deceptive practices are, I've read other pieces in the past, OG, that say that the amount of times that they can get you out is lower, is actually lower than they promised. But then also the the size of the fee that they take to get you out, it might be better to stay in the timeshare contract than, than to get out. Let's talk about this. You know, people talk about timeshares is bad. Do you think a timeshares is bad? I think it's like an annuity. It may be bad or it may be good. I mean, I know tons of people, and I know you do too, that are in love with their Disney vacation club. Like they, would, I know people in the Marriott system that love it as well. Yeah, they would never go anywhere else. And then there's some that aren't great. You know, I mean, it's it has to suit you as a as an individual. It's 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 no different than if you're going to. You know, we're talking about uh, housing prices, right? And redoing your house or buying a vacation home or whatever. And that's all the rage right now. And you start thinking about that and you go, okay, if I'm going to buy a vacation home, not, not rent it out, it's not a rental, this is just for my family, you know, and friends. And here's the price that I can afford. The bank says I'm good for it. And here's the monthly amount. And here's the main, you know, like all that stuff, like, if you remember going from a rental to a house, it's not just the payment, right? You got to mow the grass and shovel the snow and vacuum and, you know, pick up leaves. You got to do all sorts of stuff at another place as you do at your place. But you really like the lake. And so you want to do that. And then you add all that up and you go, okay, that's 1500 bucks a month. You can go on some pretty nice vacations for $18,000 a year. Every year until the end of time. And so you really have to be committed to a certain idea or a certain thing. And if your thing is Disney or your thing is the Westin in Scottsdale and you're like, that's our place and we love it and we love everything about it. We never want to go anywhere else. Then it can work out well for you. But you have to remember that when you, you know, when you sign up for these things, they're not, they're not trials. (laughs) They're there for a reason and they've been successful selling these timeshares for a really long time. Right. So you got to really love it, I guess. I, I don't know. 
I don't think it's right for us, but but I have thought about the Disney thing. Like when you go to Disney, you're like, yeah, I could go here all the time. This is pretty awesome. And I know when you go on vacation, and that's the point. They get you to the to the West End in Palm Springs, and you're like, yeah, I could, uh, yeah, I could. This would be cool. But do you really want to be there all the time? I don't know. I totally agree. I think. I mean, let's talk about a couple things. OG, this is not the cheapest way to travel. It is not. And if somebody sells you on this and they're horrible salespeople uh, because the commissions, just like with annuities, the commissions to the salespeople are high. And it's the big problem in the industry that the commissions are so high and the sales practices, because they build so many of these things and they pressure salespeople to make the sale, right? And that's where you hear things about them holding onto your coat and you can't get it back until this one hour presentation, which ends up being four hours finishes, those sorts of practices put a huge black eye on it. I think the other thing that's kind of funny is, could you imagine, I don't know how you would respond, but I, I've thought about this because we get the letters, you know, little postcards like, come visit our hotel. It's only $400 for an entire week. Bring your family. And the little asterisk that says, you must attend. Uh, you got to attend this thing. And so I've called them and I'm like, well, you know what? They're like, and same thing. They're like, well, it's an hour and both spouses have to be there. I'm like, oh. I can sit for an hour, right? But I would totally at the one hour and oh 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 one second mark be like, bro, my hour's up. You you this is what you bought and I'm out of here. Like I wonder how many people are just so intimidated. And I know that's part of the thing, right? They're so intimidated by I don't want to make a scene. Right. I don't want to be the guy that gets up in the middle of the thing. Like get up and walk out. It's like going to a uh, uh an MLM thing or something. You know, I've told the story about the time that I went, I was working with a mortgage broker when I was a brand new financial planner. They encouraged us to have all these relationships, right? You know, get centers of influence. And so I had this uh, mortgage guy that I worked with. He goes, hey, come to this thing with me. And I did. And he said, this guy's like, he's a gazillionaire. He's like, I'll show you how to make all this money. And I'm like, well, kind of got the career path chosen. Apparently this earns money. And the guy was up there talking about how much money he made and all this other sort of stuff. And not to be super snobby about it, but I knew his suit was from JCPenney. When you buy a suit off the rack at a department store, they have sometimes have the label on the outside of the sleeve that you are supposed to cut off. And he did not. In addition to that, there was also the tag was still stuck on the inside of his suit coat, stuffed inside of the suit. Like you could see when he moved, you could see the tag was still attached. Almost like, I'll just wear this this time and then I can return it. And we were sitting maybe in the third row and I'm like, yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> like I'm not listening to some dude who apparently has Lambos like we were talking about on Monday, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's got Lambos. He's telling me how to make money, but he doesn't know to t- cut the tag off of the suit. Like what the heck? Come on now. Well, the bigger thing there for me isn't necessarily the JCPenney suit because, you know, I mean, you read the millionaire next door. Maybe I can see the benefit of the doubt, right? Frugal person. No, I, I don't. I really don't. Not in that capacity. Not when your job is to be on stage. Right. 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 Agreed. Your job is to be like, it's like a newscaster. And not if you're bragging about how much money you're making. Yeah, exactly. Not knocking Hagar wrinkle-free suits because they're awesome. Yes. My point is, is that if your job is to be like the presenter of the thing that's like, I'm going to show you how to make millions of dollars, like you don't show up in like a beat up pickup truck. I get that beat up pickup trucks are totally fine, right? Yes. I'm okay no, with that. I get it. It's but the, that's not the story. It's the role. Like when you're a when you're a real estate agent taking people around in a really nice car, just sells. It's 
part of the deal. Yeah. But that's another thing. MLMs by themselves, not bad, but when there are very low barriers to entry, when it comes to the people that sell them, you're going to have people using deceptive practices to sell them. Like there are people running around selling McDonald's franchises, which cost a bajillion dollars each that are like, Hey, you can make lots of money and never work and sit back and whatever. You you know, do you think they're like, you're never going to put down any fries your entire life. Like that's just not, it just is such a lie. Three weeks at hamburger (laughs) you and you are set for life. Right. But I do get frustrated when people say that MLMs are bad and that timeshares are bad because a timeshare by itself is just a way to share this, this rental property where you're using other people's rental properties to your point. And you're going to pay this maintenance fee to keep it up because unless you want to go rake your own yard and people will agree to that and they'll never do that. So that's why that's out the window and they make you pay this management fee every year. And the management fee sometimes feels pretty high, but then you go to these places. I went to a friend's timeshare place in Cabo a year ago. Holy cow. Like the open areas where everybody goes are phenomenal. And I'm paying part of that if I own a piece of it. And when you're there, you're like, especially if you're there as a guest or as a prospect, let's say, yes, you're like, yeah, I could totally go here. Absolutely. This, this could be our place. I can get behind coming here every, how, how many times can I be here? Three times a year for a week? Oh yeah, I could totally do this. But then how many times do you go to Cabo anyway? You know what I mean? Like if that was really your vacation all the time. These particular people that I went with loved it. And here's why they loved it, OG. They didn't even consider it a vacation anymore. They considered it to be their getaway place. And they had a cheap flight out of Dallas to Cabo that they had that they found and twice a year, not really a vacation, just take Friday and Monday off and uh Saturday, Sunday, fly to their place in Chicago. They're late in their career. They Cabo, feel not Chicago. That's a whole different place. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also Cabo Chicago's and Chicago nice. are not alike. Well, yeah timeshare in in Chicago. But my point is for them, they knew what they were getting into. They like that lifestyle. They go back to it all the time. The maintenance fee for them is not, I I think they know it's not the cheapest way to travel. It's, It's just what they want. Convenience. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like some of the problem, and don't get me wrong, the high pressure sales pitch, the chance to have the free one hour thing and get something that you totally shouldn't be able to pay for. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law went to Hawaii and one of these things took the whole damn family to Hawaii for free. I mean, they had to pay their airfare to get there, but the place they stayed was free for five days. If they attended a one hour presentation. Yeah. What's the catch? What's the catch when the rest of us are paying 800 a night for that room? Right. So if you do that and you get sucked into buying a timeshare and you're asking a law firm to get you out of that contract, yeah, there's a piece of me that thinks you got to show up to this crap, right? You got to be in that room to actually get sold. And if you don't do any homework before you get in that room, whose, whose problem is that really? Did I ever tell you the story about the time where my mom... My mom won't mind me telling this story. Also, she won't know. But um, <laughs> it's great having relatives that don't listen to your show. <laughs> yeah, um, she does on occasion. She won't care. But anyways, uh, she called me one time. She goes, "Well, we almost won the truck." I'm like, "You almost won the what?" She's like, "Well, there was a truck. We almost won it." I'm confused, mom. What are you talking about? Well, we had to go to this thing so you could win a truck. I'm like, "Well." Uh, 
You went to like a car dealership? Are they having a raffle or something? She's like, no, 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 no. It was like a campground thing. Go to the campground thing, listen to it. You win a free truck. I'm like, but you didn't win the free truck though. No, we were close. We we were we were like one number off. It's like the raffle ticket where it's like seven, six, eight, four, three, nine. And you're like, damn it, I was one off. It's like, no, you weren't. <laughs> it's like you need to go back to stat school. But anyways, she's like, we were really close. We almost won. I'm like, okay. But uh, okay. And I know where this is headed, right? I'm like, so campground memberships, huh? She's like, yeah. Yeah, we had to listen. We had to sit there. It was pretty long, a couple hours. I said, yeah. And so the good news is, is if you guys want to ever go camping. We got you covered. We've got a place for you to go. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, when was the last time you went camping? She's like, oh, see, I was born in 52. So I would say 57, 58. You know, and I'm like, exactly. Like, why, what What happened? She's like, it was really cheap. It was only like 2000 bucks a year. And you can go to all these campgrounds. But you weren't going to spend it anyway. <laughs> She's like, when you go to all these campgrounds, I'm like, all right, do you have a tent? How are you? Like, she's like, well, we could have gone with a new truck. <laughs> like, right. But you can't camp in a truck either. But it's just, and it, listening to her tell this story, it was totally the sales pitch, like coming back to me. Like, well, you know, but, but the kids could go. And so that's nice. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going camping. <laughs> I was in the Marines, man. I camped all the time. I'm good. <laughs> Got all the t-shirts of camping. Got your camping in. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. So it was like five years. They were committed to it for like five years. I think, years. by the way, OG, camping could be a hell of a lot more fun than the camping you did. Just just saying. Well, maybe, but Uncle Sam ruined it. There's a whole different camping culture that you've never been exposed to if all your camping was You don't was walk in out the into the desert and like dig a hole in the sand. and <laughs> Camping may have changed. Sleep in your clothes. Go fight bad guys in your free time. That's not... Uh, <laughs> That's not that's not the camping that you guys do. Can, huh. can you see people doing that at the Jellystone campground? The KOA Jellystone. Humping all your gear. You got like 60 pounds of crap in your bag. What's that? Well, that's in case we get in a gunfight. It's called a machine gun. The whistle at zero dark 30. <laughs> They're like, grandma, what the hell's going on? We got to form up, kiddo. Charlie in the wire. Like Constantina <laughs> wire before you go to bed. Yeah. Glory days. Oh, Anyways, boy. So, hey, if you're sitting at a uh, timeshare and you want to leave, if you're still in America, just walk out. Like, there's really nothing anybody can do. So, if they keep your coat, like you said, so what? Go get a new coat. It's a hell of a lot cheaper to get a new coat than it is a timeshare. <laughs> so, go get 10 new coats. Or the MLM presentation the same way. There, there's, I, yeah. I hear people rip on... MLMs and rip on timeshares. And and there's a piece of me that thinks, okay, yes, the sales practices is some of these things. But I know people in both of those industries have been very successful, enjoy the products, yep. you know, like it, but it feels much more like they knew what they were getting into. They knew what they were getting and they weren't buying the fact that you're getting something for free. Speaking of not getting something for free, something that ain't free is wealth building. You actually got to put some money away. Rob Williams from Charles Schwab has some great data, OG, uh, looking at wealth building in America. Wealth building, by the way, makes things feel like they're free because your money's earning the money and you don't have to, which is awesome. Let's say hi to uh, Rob Williams. Well, some exciting news. Charles Schwab just released its 2021 Modern Wealth Survey, which is an annual examination of how Americans think about saving, spending, investing in wealth, something that all you stackers and I can appreciate and we're trying to do. And here on my dad's shortwave to walk through it with us 
is my new friend, Rob Williams, Vice President Financial Planning at Charles Schwab. How are you, Rob? I'm good, Joe. It's great to be here. Thanks. I'm super happy you could be with us. Well, let's dive into it. We've been, I don't know if you know this, but we had a pandemic the last year. (laughs) I don't know if that affected you and the people around you as well, but are we optimistic coming out of this or are we pessimistic coming out of it? Yes, I did notice. And then so many people have, I mean, this has really been quite a, a year and a half and we did do this modern wealth survey to ask a thousand Americans exactly that question. How are they thinking about savings, spending and investing in wealth? And, and this year, you know, we asked a lot of questions about how they're feeling about sort of their finances as we emerge from the pandemic. And we are seeing a lot of optimism. The country's beginning to reopen. There are a lot of new investors into the market. So overall, the study does show that they're feeling optimistic about the job market, the stock market, as well as their own personal finances. Now, clearly that may not apply to everyone. We know there's a lot of folks that are still having a challenging time, but overall, seems optimism is is certainly rising. As I look through this, Rob, it appears that people are, and we've done stories about this already on the show, but man, people really are hoping to be social again, and maybe our budget uh, thought should be around how we re-add travel and restaurants back into the budget? Yeah, that's what we saw. I mean, half of the people in the survey were said they want to get back to spending and living like they were before COVID-19. And a lot of them say that they really want to increase their spending. They want to travel more. They want to socialize more, vacation, et cetera. I get it. Um, I, I feel the same way. And hosting a party for the first time. So all these things, they've been waiting for that. But the other flip side of it is that what we see is a lot of them, this was a big crisis and often that causes people to rethink too. So there was a lot of saving and and sort of focus on maintaining and nurturing healthy financial habits as well. So that's that's an interesting balance that we see folks working through is they want to get back to living, but they've also seen that there are other things than just spending that are important to them. That's That's really good news. I know that you also look at what people feel like when it comes to being wealthy. And I wanted to highlight this because you had a really big change in the number people thought was true wealth. Yeah, that is really interesting. And this is the fifth year we've done this study. And it's one of the questions we do ask is, how much money do you feel it takes to feel wealthy? The outlook for the folks we surveyed was revised pretty significantly this year. It was down to what's still a pretty high number. What they said on average was $1.9 million is what it took to be wealthy in America. And that's still you know double the average net worth of the average U.S. household. But it's $700,000 lower than it was last year. So in 2020, just prior to the pandemic. So interesting finding. You know, I think we see that people are sort of looking at other aspects of their financial health, not just the dollar amount, what it does for them, mental health, other issues, not just the dollar sign there in terms of what their household net worth is. Do you think that was the change? We're looking at wealth in a more holistic view. That's why the drop? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that was one of the big takeaways is we talk a lot about planning and I'm sure you all do as well is that most people focus on the planning side of their finances after big major life events. And we've all collectively experienced a huge major life event. So it's understandable that folks would sort of take a look at what is my money doing for me, not just the dollar amount. 
we're encouraged to see that because we encourage people to take the time to create a plan, not just accumulate wealth. So yeah, we are seeing that folks are talking a lot about sort of better money habits, how to invest smartly. And that's really a trend that I think COVID has brought on for a lot of folks that we talk to. I want to ask you two more questions about your role looking at financial plans. Number one is, do you think that the basics have changed, Rob, the, any of the fundamentals have changed? And then second, for somebody who's just getting started, what's probably the key fundamental to begin with when you're building your plan? Yeah, those are both great questions. I mean, I don't think the fundamentals have changed. I think more and more people can get access to financial planning and should get access to it. We also find that a lot of folks, when you say you have a financial plan, they may not know what that means. They have different definitions. They have different visions of what that might entail. Or sometimes they think it might mean that I'm going to talk to someone and they're going to tell me I'm not doing the right things. So first thing is just to get a little bit more knowledgeable about what it means to have a plan. It's as much a process as anything else and talking with the professional who's there to help you create it. And we do hear a lot of folks say they have a plan, but only 33% of the folks we surveyed have it written down. So that's really an important part of this um, is to write it down. And then 42% of the folks in the survey say that they didn't write it down because they didn't think they had enough money to merit one. So those are a couple of things we'd encourage is you can get access to a plan, write it down, uh, get a financial planning professional to help you do it. And the fundamentals of planning haven't really changed. It's, it's just making sure you, you sit down and, and do it and then, of course, follow it. I love this idea. If it's important to you, no matter how much money you have, it seems like it's important enough to write down. Yeah. I mean, we all say we have a plan. We all manage our finances each day. And the question is, are we doing it well? Or the other is a plan helps you stay when there's shocks to the system. When we go through major life events, that's what we found in the survey. It causes people to re-examine and sometimes overreact and react in ways that, uh, Maybe that they shouldn't, and, and certainly if they've been prepared with an emergency fund, with insurance, that sort of thing, they can stay invested, et cetera. So you know, we just encourage anyone, any of the listeners out there who don't have a financial plan, use this as a time to, to consider one. At Schwab, we launched a Schwab plan, which is a free digital financial plan that for our clients last year, and we've seen 25,000 people complete plans. Oh, cool. And it's a really good place to start. That is cool. And you beat me to the punch, big guy. I was going to ask you if, if you might know of a place with resources, but you beat me to it. How do people find that planning tool? Yeah, you can find the Schwab plan as well as a number of other planning tools and resources at schwab.com. Pretty easy to navigate from there to the Schwab plan. And you can start that on your own. You can get help with a financial professional as well. There's different types of plans, but go to schwab.com. That's a great place to start. Well, Rob, thanks for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to chat with us about financial planning. And I was so happy to see the optimism in this survey. I think that, you know, there's still a lot going bad, but that's some uh, maybe, maybe good news on the horizon. I agree. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Rob Williams from Charles Schwab. Some good Good numbers there, OG. Uh, so we've got uh, wealth building in America going pretty darn well. More people, 401k millionaires. That's great. Isn't it interesting too? People think that being wealthy is a smaller number now than a year ago. I just want to go back to that because it just makes me feel like so close. maybe we learned some lessons during the pandemic. Like wealth means a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. 
than we thought. But uh, big takeaway from today, OG. Well, I kind of said it when we were wrapping up the timeshare thing. I, I think uh, just be in charge of yourself. If you feel like you want to participate in something, participate in it. If you don't feel like you want to participate in it, don't. There might be some repercussions, right? You may have to pay a fee or you might have to pay for the hotel stay or whatever, but that's okay. Like Just like we just learned that people value other things more than money at some point, you know, like it's just kind of that thing. Hey, your time is what you got. So be careful how you invest it. Yeah. And on, on that note, I think knowing what you're getting into when you get into any contract, someone's putting a contract in front of you, it's okay to make a stink. It's okay to not be okay with that. It's, it's much better than having these payments and having to hire somebody to help you get out of this contract. So whether it's an MLM and somebody's telling you that you can get something for nothing, you can't, or it's a timeshare presentation where the place is beautiful and you're not really thinking about the fact that there's maintenance fees on this property, whether you go or not, and that you are committing really to spend your time at these places, I think you need to spend some time doing your homework. And it literally is going to color your satisfaction with how you how you like it. I feel like a lot of times when people don't like these things, they they bought into the wrong aspects of uh, of the product. I think those are some fantastic takeaways today. Hey, dude, call, call, okay, uh, Doug's here, ready to do the trivia, so uh, let's get a move on. stackers no time we're moving right along here it's national leave the office early days so let's just get to today's trivia on this date in 1928 Velveeta cheese best cheese ever was created by Kraft so the question is what is the most popular selling type of cheese in the U.S. today I'll be back quick so I can blow this popsicle stand Hey, Staggers, it's Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend, Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do a shout out to. He is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? A Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, here's a disclaimer. you got to join and open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st, so get on it, stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account, $5 minimum balance to open. Maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things. They offer 24-7 help for their U.S.-based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to NavyFederal.org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? 
Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Hey, trivia fans. Faster, faster. No time to waste. Emily Guy Birkin is waiting, and I've got plans just as soon as I wrap up another stellar Stacking Benjamins podcast episode, so let's get you your trivia answer. The question was, what is the most popular selling cheese in the U.S. today? With a 14% market share, we've got Parmesan cheese coming in at third. At number two, we've got cheddar with a 15% market share, and coming in at number one, thanks largely to the best food of all time, pizza, it's mozzarella cheese with a 21% market share. All right, Joe, I'm sure they all nailed today's trivia question, so let's just bring on our guest. See ya! Thank you, Doug. We are not going to rush our way through this show, but let's introduce today's guest, Emily Guy Birkin. Never heard of her. (laughs) Getting ready to come down to the basement. But this topic, let's talk about why we wanted to talk to Emily. When it comes to retirement planning, OG, as you know, there is so much to know. There is so, so much to know. It isn't just about saving money. That's a great place to start. But there are also strategies with how you save money. Do you save it into tax shelters? What types of tax shelters do you save it into? There is so much to know about government benefits. There's historically what's been called the three-legged stool of retirement, which is social security, defined benefit programs like pensions or annuities. And then the third, which is your savings. And then there's outside considerations, your house, your family, There is so much to know. And while Emily's book is called The Five Years Before You Retire, I think that even if you're 25 years before you retire, understanding what some of these big, big problems are going to be so that you know what to focus on when it comes time to retirement plan is super important. A little bit about Emily and why we wanted to talk to her. Not only is she going to be my co-author in our upcoming book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to modern money management, which means uh, Emily also is one of the funniest people that I know. We may not get into a lot of the funny today when we circle back to talk about Stacked. I'm sure we'll hear that. But I felt very lucky. I was looking for a co-author and uh, I realized that we interview so many authors here on the show. Emily was easily my first choice because of the fact that besides that wicked sense of humor she has. Her writings appeared everywhere. Business Insider, Kiplinger, MSM Money, Forbes, and uh, the Washington Post. Her dad was a financial planner as well. And talking about money management, something she's been doing since she was young. It runs in her blood. So there is obviously a reason why Emily's book, The Five Years Before You Retire, is now updated seven years later. Let's say hello to Emily Guy Birkin. And on our way down the stairs, 
to the basement. It's my good friend. And this feels kind of weird because for people that don't know, we've spent a lot of time together lately. Emily Guy Birkin's with me. Hey, Joe. (laughs) Hey, how come we never talk? I know. I know. It's like I'm never in the basement anymore. (laughs) But it's weird because we usually are talking about, of course, our book, which we'll be talking about a lot later. and won't talk about a ton today, except everybody should pre-order it after they get done with this book, The Five Years Before You Retire. Is it weird that it's been seven years since this book's come out? It is very weird. Yes. I was mentioning to you before we started recording that uh, I was writing this when I was pregnant with my younger son who turns eight in September. I don't know how that happened, how my tiny little baby is almost an eight-year-old. And it's kind of the same with, you know, my my book baby has been out for so long. How did that happen? But it's interesting. The reason I wanted to, and I thought even before I asked you earlier about that, I assume because we all see time go very fast, that we think the five years before you retire is a lot of time. But to your point here with this book, that five years before you retire, there's a lot of stuff in this book that needs to get done the five years before you retire. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's a kind of chunk of time that feels significant. It's a significant chunk of time, but at the same time, like it's going to go by way faster than you expect, particularly if you're not paying attention. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to revise it and update it to make sure that it had all the best and most up-to-date information possible. And I wanted to give people some good actionable steps they could take so that they could kind of break it down. That's uh, that whole eat the elephant idea, you know, so I could give them a bite at a time. So it didn't feel like I'm just going to, you know, hide under my desk with my arms over my head and just assume everything will be okay. (laughs) Be like, Oh gee, put the bag over your head and yeah. And just don't, don't look at it. You begin, let's give some of that actionable advice. And it's funny because you begin in a place that I think a lot of people don't think is that actionable, which is, Chapter one is a realistic definition of retirement. And I want to ask you about a realistic definition because I feel like, Emily, over the last five years, you know, the fire movement has really kind of redefined this idea, I feel, of what realistic definition means. Has that changed for you in the last seven years since you wrote this? Is realistic different now than it was before? No, it's not that different. And here's why. I tend to look at uh, retirement differently than most people do. A lot of people, and it's just kind of how our culture thinks of things, we're very binary. We're like, you work and then you retire, you know, like you're accumulating money and then you're spending money. And I don't like thinking of life as such a binary. Part of that is because people put their life on the other side of retirement. They're like, oh, I'll do the things I want to do after I retire. I'll travel the world. I'll spend more time with my kids or grandkids. I will learn to cook, you know, whatever it is they're looking forward to doing. I... I have a great deal of respect for the fire movement. There's a lot of really cool stuff that they're doing in terms of encouraging people to look at money differently, to aim towards financial independence. The retire early thing I get a little uncomfortable with because a lot of times I feel like it's putting happiness on the other side of this arbitrary marker. You know, like I have to be miserable now so I can make sure I have enough money so I can retire and be happy then. And, you know, buses hit people, (laughs) Um, cancer diagnosis has come things happen. And so I don't want people putting happiness on the other side of retirement. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from with this realistic view of retirement, in part because 
for a lot of us, we have this kind of unrealistic view of retirement as being like idyllic days on the golf course. Everything is fun. Everything is great. And uh, it's paid for with your pension (laughs) Um, that our grandparents might have enjoyed. But that was a very, very small portion of time in the whole history of humans working that retirement looked like that. And so I want people to come to the idea of I can have a fulfilling and enjoyable retirement, but it's not necessarily going to look like that. And also recognize that just because it did look like that for our grandparents, that didn't necessarily mean they were happy. Right. Well, and it's funny you talk about happiness. It reminds me of this Adam Sandler bit on Saturday Night Live where he is leading tours of Italy. You know, like retirement, we look at it as this idyllic place that we're going to get to. Well, let's just listen to Adam Sandler telling us about it on Saturday Night Live. People love us, but every so often a customer leaves a review that they weren't, they were disappointed or didn't have as much fun as they thought. So here at Romano Tours, we always remind our customers, if you're sad now, you might still feel sad there, okay? You understand that makes sense? Our tours will take you to the most beautiful places on earth. Hike the cliffs of the Amalfi Coast. Fish with the nets in Sorrento. Do this, I don't know. But remember, you're still gonna be you on vacation. You're still going to be you, Emily, in retirement. I think it's the same. Yes, that is very true. One of my uh, my favorite writers about writing um, is Anne Lamott. And one of the things that she talks about is like, getting published is not going to solve your problems. <laughs> and and that, that was like, I really took that to heart because it's just like, we do as writers, we do tend to think like, once I'm published, the world will, everything will be perfect. And no, you're still going to be the same person with the same neuroses and, and uh, weirdnesses and unhappiness just with a published book or in Italy or on retirement in retirement. Well, let's dive into saving and budgeting for those last five years. What really needs to change? What do we need to get under the hood and dive into when it comes to saving and budgeting when we're on final approach? It's important to get a clear-eyed view of how much you're going to have to live on in retirement. I liken it to getting on the scale after New Year's Day. Um, and that, uh, you're avoiding it cause you don't want to know the number, <laughs> but if you want to actually take action, you got to look. So finding out how much you already have saved, how much you can expect from social security, how much you might be able to expect from any pension if you're lucky enough to get one and figure out what that's going to mean for your day-to-day or month-to-month budget in retirement. And once you've got that, There are two things that are really important to do. Start trying to live on that budget is actually really good because- Like play test it ahead of time. Yes, because if it's much lower than what you're used to living on, you don't want to have that shock. And then that has the added benefit of if you're living on that budget, you're going to have extra money that you can send to your retirement accounts to allow them to grow so that you can maybe not have to live on that budget. Oh, yeah. And so that's something that- uh, a lot of people have trouble doing. It's it's hard to, to get into that mindset. But if you're thinking ahead about those things, it's going to be a lot easier than like being used to a certain standard of living. And then all of a sudden it falls off a cliff. I love that advice. I also love it for our stackers out there that are thinking about starting a family. When I was a financial planner, if somebody was going to either move to a bigger house, have a bigger mortgage, have a child, like try to look at those expenses ahead of time 
and automatically save that money to get it out so that you feel the tightness. And the cool thing is, is if you're putting this money that was going to be additional mortgage money, let's say into a savings account, instead of, oh my goodness, we can't afford this and the bank's going to take our house. Now, all we have to do is call the bank and just change the, change the savings amount and then realize ahead of time that we're not going to be able to afford it. So that's, I, I love that for everything. You talked about social security. This is something that you spend a lot of time on. And I think people don't understand how complicated social security is. Where does it get people? One of the big issues with social security is that we have been told over and over and over again, it's not going to be there if you're not a boomer. And that's not true. That is a lie. That is, that is not anything that anyone needs to worry about. Now, there are shortfalls. Why, why is that, by the way? Why do people say that? Yeah, no, why is it a lie? Oh, okay. Because social security is a direct transfer from current workers to current beneficiaries. So we have the social security trust fund and because money is hard for us to wrap our heads around, it's easier for us to think of, okay, there's this trust fund. And so I imagine it's a huge bank vault like Scrooge McDuck's that you can swim in if you want to. And you might even imagine that there's a certain area that's got your name and social security number on it. And so when the trust fund is used for other things, the way that's described, people are like, they're taking my future money away from me. That is not how any of it works. For one thing, the trust fund is not a physical thing. The trust fund is... Um, there's no vault with money with my name on it. There's no vault with money with your name on it. That is hashtag spoiler right there. <laughs> I don't like that. I want a vault with my name on it, Emily. I know. it's. Uh, if you think about it, that would make no sense because not only is it a security risk, I mean, you, you remember uh, uh, Goldfinger and, and uh, Fort Knox. Sure. It's also a risk to loss uh, via inflation. And so the money in that uh, Social Security Trust is actually loaned out with the full faith and confidence of the U.S. government, which is about as clear as you can get that that money is safe and earns interest. So when people are saying things like they're raiding Social Security, that's not what's happening at all. In the same way that if you put $1,000 in your savings account and the bank makes a mortgage loan to someone and uh, uses money from all over, including $1,000 in your savings account, they have not raided your savings account. It's simply earning interest for the bank. And if you go and say, I want my $1,000, you will get it. So, and that's something that it's, it's because money is what it is. It's so amorphous. It's kind of an idea we all share. We have trouble wrapping our heads around it. And then you get in social security, the idea of retirement, the sense of being vulnerable. And then you get people making political hay of it. And there's this sense that like, oh, it's not going to be there for me. And so that leads people to doing things like I'm going to take my social security benefits as early as possible to make sure I get the most out of it. And that's the worst possible option unless you absolutely need to have those benefits to keep the lights on. What's the cost of taking it early versus taking it later? Is there a percentage cost that's calculated? It's like 8% a year. 8%. So I'm losing 8%. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And the thing about 8% a year is while the market has historically done about that or a little bit better, it's not guaranteed. So if you take your benefits the minute you turn 62, you're going to lose uh, the difference between what you were supposed to get minus 8% a year to 62. So that's between age 66 and 67. 
And then once you reach your full retirement age, which is 66 or 67 or thereabouts, you'll get that full benefits. And if you wait until age 70, you get another 8% a year. So you can get even more. So this is the gamble (laughs) that everyone should take. It's the best possible odds you can have. And a lot of people don't understand that. And they, they're thinking of like, well, I want to make sure I don't get screwed. It's like, that's not the way to look at it. But you do, I think have to look at, I think you have to look at your family's health history, right? That is true. I mean, on that side, because there will be a crossover point if I wait that I'm still going to have to achieve. So, but still, you know, I look at my grandparents passed away in their early sixties. My parents are in their mid seventies right now. I'm looking at some other relatives. My dad's older brother, I think is 82 or 83. Uh, so people live in a lot longer generation by generation. And even if you have, um, a health history that leads you to believe you're likely to die younger. Uh, the other thing to remember is that the worst possible thing to happen is not that you die young. It's that you live to be 120 and you don't have the money for it. So for instance, my father passed away at 62. So he got no benefit from social security. He had not taken it when he died. But that does not in any way change the way I view social security because he would have been uh, like, for one thing, he would only have gotten about 10 months worth of, uh, of, of benefits. And then for another, you know, if he had lived to be into 100, 110, 120 and did not have funds of his own, then that Social Security would have been a lifeline and you would want as large a benefit as you can get. So thinking of it as an insurance policy in the same way that you pay for life insurance, you pay for uh, homeowner's insurance and you hope to never need it, but you want to have what you need there when you need it. So I think of social security the same way. You hope to never be relying only on it, but in case you do end up having to rely only on it, you want it to be as big as possible. Calculations also get complicated for people I know with second marriages mm-hmm. um, or taking spousal support. I know you've got all that in the book and people should look at that. But while we're talking about non-political government benefits like Social Security, why don't we talk about health care? Because nobody politicizes health care, Evelyn. Oh, not at all. <laughs> this, though, I know when I was a financial planner, this was a huge dilemma. And, and it is in your book, too, a big dilemma. What do we do around healthcare? What are some of the thoughts? So, healthcare is a big, scary thing about retirement. Um, Fidelity does a uh, study every year where they calculate the amount that a 65 year old couple will need for healthcare for the rest of their lives. So, in the most recent year, which I believe is 2020, it was um, calculated at $295,000 which is a lot. And the important thing to remember is that they're 65 year old couple, meaning they're on Medicare. So that, that is with Medicare. There is an important caveat to the fidelity study that I, I I make sure to tell everyone when they start breathing into a paper bag after I I give them that number. (laughs) And that is fidelity because of the way that they, they have to do their math. There's no way around this. They assume that once you start ailing, you're going to, it's going to be a slow slide to death rather than the reality, which is like you recover, you come home, things are better. You're, you're, you're normal, vigorous self again for a while. It's just a longer slide to death. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a longer, (laughs) slower slide to death. (laughs) (laughs) We're both fun at parties. (laughs) 
at least with each other. Yes. Right. <laughs> Everybody else is on the other side of the room. Like, look at the nerds in the corner. So that's one thing that I tell people to be like, it's okay. It's okay. You're, you're, <laughs> you don't need to freak out quite yet. But the thing is, healthcare is going to be a major cost in retirement, and it's not fun to plan for, like the cost of travel or the cost of, of visiting grandkids or, or any of those things. And it's difficult because there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. We don't know if there's going to be expansions of Medicaid. We don't know if there's going to be changes to the Affordable Care Act. We don't know a lot of things. So the best that you can do is plan for the cost as best you can. And take good care of yourself. I mean, taking good care of yourself, eating, uh, you know, getting adequate rest, eating healthy foods as much as you can, do, exercising as well as you can, quitting smoking and that sort of stuff is financial planning, which is just, you know, as someone who uh, really enjoys Swiss cake rolls, that is not <laughs> something good. I like to know. I was, I blocked out all that stuff you just said, and I want another donut. There's no way. That's crazy talk. Every author I talked to has something that as they were researching, as they were writing, surprised them. What surprised you when you were diving into this, either initially or revising it? I think the the thing that surprised me, uh, like kind of the in-between when I wrote it the first time and when I wrote it this time was um, my view of long-term care insurance. Long-term care is non-medical help that you might need for the long-term. And so in particular, for someone who has like Alzheimer's, um, long-term care is a serious issue because you may be perfectly healthy other than the Alzheimer's, but you need help with bathing, dressing, mobility, eating, th those sorts of things. Um, and Medicare doesn't cover it. That's the first thing that is like, whoa. Yeah, it does not cover long-term care unless it is medically necessary. So at the time that I wrote the book originally, I was just a year out from um, my mom having been in a medically induced coma because she'd gotten pneumonia. It took her quite some time to get back. She had to have physical therapy. She had to have long-term care things. My mom's a big believer in insurance, but because she was a small business owner and because of some health problems, she had never been able to qualify for long-term care insurance. So I was very much rah, rah, sis, boom, long-term care insurance <laughs> when I first wrote the book. In researching for the updated version, it became very clear that long-term care insurance is not necessarily the slam dunk that I believed it to be in 2013 as I was writing the book. And that's because... The cost of long-term care insurance keeps going up. It does not have quite the infrastructure of a marketplace that life insurance does. So it's a lot harder to, to shop around and, and, um, and find various options. So they have determined that it is only going to be financially viable for something like 30 to 40 percent of, of people. For everyone else, it's going to make more sense to um, self-insure, meaning you have enough money to cover any long-term care you need, or plan on drawing down all of your assets until you qualify for Medicaid, which does pay for long-term care insurance. So that was the thing that, that really kind of opened my eyes, changed my mind about how things should be. The thing that's frustrating is, is that I like to think about insurances in terms of magnitude and the ones that are the most expensive are the issues you should pay attention to most, right? Like a lot of people through work have accidental death and dismemberment insurance. And I have no idea why, because if you've got a desk job, you might get a paper cut, 
But if you accidentally die from the paper cut, that's going to pay, you know, three times whatever. So make sure it's a good paper cut. But people will not get disability coverage because it's expensive. What's amazing about long-term care and what you're saying is the degree of magnitude has become so high that even insurance companies by the price tag are going, we can't deal with it, right? Which is why they've jacked up the price to this point that it's, it's nearly unaffordable, but still in your risk management strategy means you need to take it so uh, seriously. But your options now, Emily, about what you do about it are less than ever, I would think. Yeah, it's very frustrating. And what I hope that my readers will do is think about it, like take their time to think about how will I I do this? They have done studies as to exactly who is going to benefit most from long-term care insurance based on how much they have. And they've determined um, that people with a nest egg of around 400,000 to about a million or so are going to be best served by long-term care insurance because of how much they have in assets and it will be worth the cost if they ever need long-term care insurance. And there are ways to reduce the cost, recognizing that most long-term care occurs for a maximum of up to three years. So having coverage that only lasts for three years, having a... um, longer period before you're covered can all help reduce the cost and make it affordable for those with that 400000 to a million dollar nest egg who are the ones who most need it. That makes so much sense because it integrates your savings more, you self-insure more, which means you're bringing the cost down. But you're still everybody, you're still going to have sticker shock. Like Even when you do that, there's still going to be what? But that still means the magnitude of covering this or figuring out your strategy is so important. The book is called The Five Years Before You Retire, retirement planning when you need it the most. Washington Post on the top of the book says it's the best book to read at age 60. I tend to disagree for you stackers because if you're in the fire movement and you're thinking about retirement at 45, this will be the best book to read by age 40. And I would think even by 35. So uh, just knowing what the issues are and how they're changing, no matter if, if it's important to you to retire early, get on this early. And I'm assuming because I see it in every bookstore, it's available everywhere, Emily. It is available everywhere books are sold. Where finer books are sold, right? <laughs> <laughs> Emily Guy Birkin, I think we're going to be talking a lot coming up. Next time we talk, it'll be about our project. Yes, it will. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us and congratulations on seven years later on this book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Huge thanks to my buddy, Emily, for talking so much. Oh, gee, so, so much to know when it comes to retirement planning. When it comes to not just what Emily and I talked about, but overall, what do you think is the number one? Oh, this is such a hard question. What's the number one thing somebody needs to know when it comes to retirement? The number one thing. I would say that the number one thing is that there's still time. The biggest problem that people have is they get to whatever age and listen, not everybody started when they were 25, right? I didn't put money in my Roth IRA in 1998 and yes, I wish I would have, but I didn't. So that can be discouraging. And so there comes a point in time where you're like kind of in your forties or fifties and you go, yeah, there's just, oh, well, I guess it's just not for me. It's like, no, no, you still have 20 years. You can do it. That's the message that I think a lot of people need to hear. Yeah, I I absolutely love that. And it's such a great cap on the discussion that uh, Emily and I had. I think that's that's good to remember. You can't go back, but you certainly can start start today and have something. 
Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline, OG, and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Getting out of here. <laughs> I just love the fact that uh, on a four-day work week, get out of the office early. So great. And what's funny is that this is actually a really long day of work for us. <laughs> it, for real. It is true. So that we can... Uh, we can spend more time later, though, than with our loved ones. And that's why buying quality term life insurance has been made actually simple by them. If you go to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, you'll get a free quote. You'll see how simple the application is, much simpler than those old school applications with pages and pages of data that nobody looks at, nobody needs. Affordable prices, all policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, though, more than 160 year old insurer. So not only are you getting the best that uh, fintech and tech has to offer, but you're also not uh, dealing with a startup company that might not be here tomorrow, backed by a hundred year old plus company. Let's say hi to our friend uh, Mac here. Uh, throw out the lifeline to him. Hey, Mac. Hey, Joe and OG. It's Mac Brewing here in Chicago. Hey, so I was wondering, uh, what did the bottle write on its postcard? Wish you were beer, but I'm. So, hey, uh, this basement is really starting to smell like you-know-what. Uh, I've been brewing a lot of homebrew here over the past few years and was considering uh, making my hobby into a small business. Wanted to get some advice from you guys on everything it takes to start up a small business, what I need to be thinking about in terms of uh, you know potentially making this a viable thing. I'm in a pretty saturated market here in Chicago, so I know location is going to be big. Uh, really would appreciate any advice you guys have. Cheers. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Mac. And Mac, I think, uh, has a second career, which is in comedy. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But OG, uh, your your thoughts? On everything that's required to start a business, yeah. Gosh, there's so much to do here. I think thinking about it exclusively from the money side of things, there's all the other criteria as, as it relates to the type of niche that you're in, like you said, location and product and all that other sort of stuff, not to mention licensing and God knows what else if you're trying to sell booze. But just purely from a money standpoint, I think that your life will be a lot easier if you do two things. Number one, keep your business separate from your personal life. And that means go get a business bank account. Go get a business credit card account. Yes, I know that you're like, maybe you don't qualify for a business credit card. Maybe like you call up Amex, they're like, no, your business isn't big enough for us. We don't care. Then just have a personal credit card that is only used for business. Because when you sit down to do the books every year and your CPA sits down to, to, to do the books, you can't be going through your ally savings account statement going, oh, wait, no, no, hold on. That was a business expense. That one right there was. It's just, it's so much easier to have those two things completely separate. And I would have every business have them separate. You know, if you have multiple entrepreneurial type of endeavors, you've got rental properties that needs to be separate. You've got your small business that needs to be separate. You've got your side hustle, Uber driving that needs to be separate because it makes it so much easier to keep track of. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I would do is I love the concept of, you know, starting fast and failing fast. Just like, like get to it and try out the most viable solution that you can think of, get it to market and see how it hits, you know, and you can do that without investing a ton of money and energy in 
retail space or huge equipment and all this. I mean, if you're doing it already, you know whether or not your product's good. So now try to see if you can sell it. Try to sell your product to your end user, your consumer. And you can do that in a really limited amount to see the viability of it. Our friend Dan Sullivan says, a check is what separates a conversation from a commitment. There's one thing to have your buddies over, you know, and sampling your brew and going, yeah, this is really good. You go, great. It's 12 bucks for a six pack. What do you think? Uh, uh, you know, it's one thing to go to a, to a tap room and, and the owner says, yeah, this is pretty good. You go, great. How many cakes do you want to buy? Uh, you know, and you want to see, is it good or is it good enough to buy? Is it good enough to sell? And you can do that in a really low quantity without investing a ton of money. Don't go buy the building, turn your block into a Sam Adams brewery, and then find out your beer sucks. You know what I mean? Like, find out it sucks first, if it's gonna, and then make whatever yeah, change he, you need to. If he's, already been making, if he's already been making this beer for a while, he already knows that it's good. I know, but there's a difference between it's good and I'll pay for it good. Yeah. Go get somebody to pay for it. See the difference between, hey, this is good and thanks for the free beer. And this is good, and I'm really willing to write a check for it. If you're anywhere close to Kansas City, Mac, well, he's in Chicago, so he's a little ways from Kansas City. I really enjoyed the Boulevard Brewing Tour, but I enjoyed hearing about how the company was uh, created. And what I liked about it was the marketing that they did. They actually went to a lot of the local bars just around the area where he lived and got them to start putting his beer on their menu. And it was just a local. Yeah. Like a minimum viable thing, right? He just said, Hey, I can sell it to the, if I can sell it to these five people, I can sell it to 500 people. But if I can't sell it to these five, there's no way I can sell it to five. Absolutely. It was just a local thing. And then it, it grew, uh, from there, but also it can be really good. And you and I know bunches of products that are really good, but if you don't have a good marketing strategy, nobody ever finds it. Yeah. And it's so hard to find yeah. your customer now. The biggest biggest discussions I have online with people is how do you find your customer? Because people don't read the paper anymore. They're in various Facebook groups or they're not on Facebook at all. They're not on social media. And if they're not on social media at all and they're not reading the paper, how the hell do you find them? Like how do you get in front of in front of people? A letter drop circa World War II. That's that's it. They just Yes. You just letter bomb a neighborhood. Yes. Flyers from the sky. Rent a little plane with a little thing on the back of it that talks about your brew. But marketing your product is a heck of is is a heck of an issue. But you know what? I want to take this to the next level OG. And and I think Mac should think really hard about whether he really wants to do that or not. Because of the fact that I, I really agree. And this interview was a couple of years ago, but with Austin Cleon when he was on, on our show. And we'll, we'll link to this in the show guide. We'll also put the link in our show notes. By the way, if you want to get a guide to the show, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. And we have not just what we talk about here, but all kinds of other related topics. So that if you're interested in the topic, we try to give you uh, as much as we possibly can. But Austin Kleon said that things change dramatically when you go from something being a hobby. Like right now, Mac likes brewing beer. Once he turns this into a business OG, it ain't about brewing beer anymore. Like at some point, if he's going to be successful, he's, he's going to hire a brew master who actually brews the beer. Because mm-hmm. he's not going to be able to stay on top of that and stay on top of customer satisfaction and stay on top of 
the people doing all the things like he, you at some point transition from the job of brewmaster over to business owner. Yeah. Like the e-myth concept. I mean, that's basically it. It's a whole different skill set, And for a lot of people, it turns your hobby into something that was beautiful and fun and great. And hey, your friends come over and you can hand them beers that you made. And how cool is that, right? Or if, you know, neighborhood party or whatever, you're bringing over your beers and it's like the secret thing to you're running a business and it absolutely sucks. And you go from this thing that you love to this thing that you hate. And you get an email from a city that says you don't have unemployment insurance in our town for your one employer. And now you have to buy it and it costs more than the employee, but you know, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think in America and now I'm totally ripping off Austin about what he said in the show, but he said, there's something in America right now where whenever somebody makes good cupcakes, we say, why don't you turn that into a business? Or somebody does, hey, you think about opening an Etsy store? You know what you should do with that? You should monetize. Like, our brains immediately go to, that's great, find a way to monetize it. And he talks about the power of not monetizing it. But if he's going to, to add on to all the stuff you said, OG, which I thought was brilliant, is this. You need a business plan. You don't need the type of business plan that the SBA talks about or the type of business plan that, you know, that a banker wants to see where it's 500,000 pages and nobody's ever going to read it. Uh, to qualify for a loan, not even the bank that asked for it. You need a back of the envelope plan, right? You need a three pieces of paper plan that talks about how am I going to grow this business? How am I going to market it? That goes through some basic math about what's it going to take to be successful. And you have to be able to your point, Toji's point, you have to be able to make the cost of the product less than, I think, 30% of what you're going to sell it for. It's going to be a big number it's going to end up being a bigger number than you're probably comfortable with. I get a lot of inspiration from uh, that show that's on CNBC called The Prophet. Yeah. Have you ever watched that? Marcus Limonis. Yeah. Some people really don't like him. And there's a lot of foodie stuff on there, restaurants and that sort of thing. And one of the things that he's a big proponent of is you need to have that per unit cost be super tiny. You know, if you're making cheeseburgers, you better be selling them for four or five X what you're you know, what it costs you to put a burger on the plate type of thing. Which also makes the great chefs even better than you think they are because they are using the simplest ingredients, the simplest ingredients. He doesn't do a lot with the best chefs in the world. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and, and, and you made reservations at Alinea once. They, they, they're they not shy about their price either. But uh, I'm all for uh, stacking Benjamin's branded beer. Maybe we can work something out with Mac. Where we yeah. get some branding rights? I think so. Good stuff. Thanks for the question, Mac. Congratulations on starting the business. If you've got a question for us, stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And uh, we are very happy to take your question. And uh, if you're brave enough to leave us the voicemail, we'll also send you a Haven Life, a Greatest Money Show on Earth t-shirt. Well, that's going to do it for today, OG. Just a few things. Number one is I got a note. Yesterday from uh, Megan off of our show guide, and she was talking about Monday show, said great episode as always. Wanted to drop a line of thanks regarding one of your show recommendations from a few episodes back. I watched F1 Drive to Survive, and it was amazing. Previously, I'd never been into racing stuff, but post-watching this, I'm in awe, such an interesting peek behind the curtain. 
Hope you're having a great day, Megan. Thanks for the note, Megan. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad you like that show. Even if you're not into racing, I just said Formula One Drive to Survive is so much about the, the people. If you like documentaries about business and you also want to bridge the gap between what Corey LaJoy talked about on Monday show, OG, and kind of what all of us live I think that that look behind the curtain at F1 Drive to Survive on Netflix is is a good one. Thanks for that. Also, thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this show. It's so important to OG and I that if you like the show, that you go on and review it and give us five stars because, as you know, if you go to restaurants, you look at the reviews. People look at the reviews. And if they see a lot of people with five-star reviews that love the show, uh, we really, really appreciate it. Here's five stars recently from CTR 83 stuffing myself silly. I thought three episodes a week could be too much. There wouldn't be much difference between them, but like coleslaw out at a summer barbecue that hurts CTR 83. You got to stop that. These coleslaw things are driving me crazy. OG. I did that once people. I did it once. You can make fun of me all day. I love coleslaw and okay. It was eight hours old, but I was kind of drunk. It was my birthday. It's actually my 50th birthday. All right. So at some point, OG, I think people might leave me alone. Hasn't everybody made a coleslaw mistake or two in their life at this point? Haven't they? Come on. Uh, they keep me coming back for more shows are longer than most, but they keep it moving and they never feel like our plus shows miss Joe's transitions and self-written ads for the sponsors. As some seem pre-recorded now, like any good host, they always serve up some yummy dessert. Most of ours are not supposed to be pre-recorded. Uh, Westwood One still, guys, just a little peek behind the curtain, sometimes struggles with uh, the ad campaigns in this new era of dynamically inserted ads that I don't know if I love or not, but there's so much that I love about uh, being a part of the Westwood One bigger network that, you know, you take the good with the bad, OG but it's been 99% great from where I sit. All right, that's going to do it for today. Last but not least, if you're somebody looking to hire a financial planning team and you are ready for great advice in your corner, OG and his team are taking new clients. So to get on their team's calendar, head to stackingbedjamins.com forward slash OG. And that is the first step, getting on their calendar to have that first conversation about what it would take to have them interface with you to make better money decisions. All right. I think that does it for today. Enough dilly-dallying, Doug. We're, we're ready for you, man. What should we have learned today, buddy? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Don't put money you can't afford to lose into risky investments. You might lose your money. Second, take a lesson from Emily Guy Birkin. Any event takes preparation, but retirement? Maybe you should start planning well before the five years before you retire. But the big lesson? Why, when you tell people it's National Leave the Office Early Day, why do they get all chatty Cathy on you? You know what? Who wants to leave the office early when you got a job as good as this one? Maybe this should be National uh, Enjoy the Office Just a Little Bit More Day. Hey, that'd be fun. How do we get a hold of these calendar people? To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To better understand the steps you should take leading up to your retirement, check out Emily's hit book, 
the five years before you retire, retirement planning when you need it most. And pre-order Emily's new book with Joe, Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacked. This show is created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Special thanks to Dave Ramsey for dropping by the basement. Unfortunately, we ran out of time for his segment. Maybe next time, Dave. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. I'm thinking everybody can hear the workmen in the basement behind me. They're working on the furnace today. OG, working on the furnace. Nobody can hear it. Yes. Uh, hey, so a couple things. We went to Hill Country this last weekend. And by the way, big thanks to listener Elizabeth writing about Hill Country. I got this while we were in Hill Country. She said, uh, welcome to Hill Country. I'm a big fan of your show from just south of Bourne. We didn't make it to Bourne, Elizabeth, but I got to tell you, Hill Country, Texas, USA is beautiful. People who don't know what I'm talking about, I wrote in our uh, Stacking Benjamins guide about Hill Country and the fact that we were headed there as an intro. She said while we're here, she'd recommend going for a hike in Lost Maple State Park and or Hill Country State Natural Area and be sure to get some Fredericksburg peaches. We didn't get any Fredericksburg peaches, but we did go to both Lost Maples, did an eight-mile hike OG, and we went to Hill Country State Natural Area. First time we went there, it was closed because there had been some flooding, but the, we went back on uh, on Memorial Day morning and uh, had a great hike up to this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful overlook. And for two, for two hikes that are so close to each other, just if you've never been out to the Hill Country of, of Texas, you're going to love it. But the biggest thing, and the reason I want to bring this up, if you're going to an area and you don't know a lot about it, don't be afraid to go into the tourist information center if, if it's run by the convention bureau. Now, if you go to an area like Orlando and you walk into a tourist information center, you're going to be sold a timeshare pitch, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yes. Right. 
But if you're in an area like Bandera, Texas, in the middle of nowhere hill country, and it says right on the sign, run by the Tourist and Convention Bureau of Bandera, walk in, find out what's there. And I have to tell you, we did that. We actually had a very specific question about a restaurant that uh, I had been to a few years before when I had been to that area, and it turned out the restaurant had closed and the guy told us a little bit about it. But not only that, OG, that weekend, Memorial Day weekend, Bandera is the cowboy capital of Texas. And Memorial Day weekend is when the pro rodeo rolls into town. That's right. You sent me those pictures. And the guy said to me, he goes, you were the clown in the barrel, right? Yeah. The guy said to me, uh, he goes, Hey, uh, what are you doing tonight? And we're like, I don't know. He goes, hold on. I got something in my truck. Goes out, comes back in and he goes, I was supposed to go last night, but it was rained out. I got these two tickets to the rodeo. You want to get, you ever been to a rodeo? We're like, no. He goes, here, take my tickets. They're free. So we go to the rodeo. I don't own a cowboy hat. Felt a little bit out of place. A lot of cowboy hats. Mm-hmm. However, people were really nice out there at the rodeo. I will also say, I know next to nothing about horse culture, about cowboy culture. So I, I was going mostly because you're in cowboy country. Go see what cowboys do. And Cheryl and I were pretty damn sure we'd be out of there in maybe 20, 30 minutes. Two things I didn't realize. Number one was our ticket came with a free dinner at the cowboy camp. And we, we go into this building and there's fried catfish yeah. and great green beans, fantastic green beans that they put a bunch of stuff in, just delicious, great food. So we sat there and we ate and, and I'm getting worried because the place is really filling up and I'm like, we're going to be standing, Cheryl. She's like, who cares? We're only going to be here like 20 minutes. It's not going to be that big a deal. Then we go and we hand the guy our tickets and I said, so where do we sit? We sit anywhere. He goes, well, number 55 is over there. And I look at my ticket again, it says number 55. We're sitting in a VIP area. I got these VIP seats waiting for me at the damn rodeo. And we sat there the entire rodeo and it was so fun. It was so fun. We had such a, we we stayed for the whole thing. My favorite part, these little kids, I don't know what the waiver looks like, by the way, you and I being finance people, I have no idea what the waiver is for this deal, but these little kids put on helmets and they couldn't have been more than five years old. And they call it mutton busting. Yeah. And the mutton, you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. They put the little kids on the back of sheep and the kids try to stay on the sheep as long as they can. They open up the door and the sheep takes off across the arena. And this little four-year-old kid hanging on for dear life to the back of the sheep. And I know if you're listening to this, you're like, that sounds awful. This sounds like child abuse. It's not. The kids seem to have a blast. The sheep, by the way, after they threw them off, went across and they all hung out together. In the, in the, it's like, okay, I threw that, that kid. Now I'm going to go hang out with, with my buddy Tim over in the corner. You know, the mutton busting was, was amazing. They had another thing. It had rained all night long. It had rained all night long the night before. So the arena was very muddy. And uh, they called out at kids 12 and under. And all these kids are getting a straight line. And they release three calves 
that have a red bow tied to its tail. And the first two kids that bring the red bow to the rodeo clown, first kid's going to get 20 bucks. Second kid's going to get 10 bucks. But watching these kids in a mud filled arena, like thinking about my kids being that age, this one kid, his, his boots, he, he must've been six or seven. His boots were so deep in the mud that he tried to move and he couldn't get his boots to nice. He couldn't get his boots to move. And so one of the Cowboys had to go over and help the kid, like pick the kid up out of his boots, pick his boots up out of the mud, carry him over to mom standing by the side. It, it was, I don't know, barrel racing. So now do you get to say, it's not my first rodeo. It's, it's, it's not my first rodeo. It was, but it's not now. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 